Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp on the New Books Network History Channel. I'm here today with Amy Lippert. Her book, Consuming Identities, Visual Culture in 19th Century San Francisco, was published last year by Oxford University Press. And we're going to be discussing that book today. Welcome, Professor Lippert. Thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, let's discuss the uh, Joseph Sharp or purportedly Joseph Sharp cover (laughs) of the book. Right. So as a specialist in 19th century visual culture, I probably cared more about the cover than perhaps most uh, authors do, which is not to say that authors don't care about it. But of course, I have a vested interest in the visual components uh, of my work. And I originally had a different idea for how we were going to go with the cover. Um, I'm a particular fan of uh, image 3.2 in the third chapter of my book. It's a, a high resolution cropped zoom um, of a larger daguerreotype scene from the early 1850s in San Francisco. And I had always found it compelling. Um, I had prints of it uh, made for my dissertation committee at Berkeley when I finished there. And um, I always thought that was going to be the image. And it was an interesting interplay with Oxford University Press and the editors there because they managed to convince me um, that the right choice was actually one that enabled us to really take advantage of the opportunity to use color Um, because the the images in the book itself are black and white. Of course, the vast majority of images created in the 19th century uh, were black and white, at least when you... uh, don't account for a very significant rising proportion of uh, multiple colors in lithographs, uh, particularly as you get towards the end of the century. Um, so it, the opportunity to employ color was embedded in this notion of the really beautiful uh, gold leaf that's typically applied to um, the matting around framed cased images, particularly early versions of photographs known as daguerreotypes, amber types. Uh, and similar uh, terminology um, or similar similar photographic processes. So uh, there was this particularly striking and iconic gold rush image, Joseph Sharp of Sharp's Flats, or at least that's how it's been labeled um, by someone. We're not sure exactly who uh, on the back. And it's a six plate half length amber type that it, it had appeared in the book that I describe in detail in the beginning of the second chapter. Um, But they convinced me that it was the one that ought to occupy uh, this place of prominence and pride on the cover. And I do think that they were right in the end, that it is compelling. It's interesting coupling my background in visual culture with their own uh, emphasis on marketing and and profits. Of course, they're uh, a company that's interested in the bottom line. And there's all this market research about 
book covers that have images of people that's considered compelling um, for the buying public and particularly people that are making eye contact with you, the viewer, when you pick up a book, if you're just browsing around a bookstore. And that's certainly the case for Joseph Sharp, if that is his real name. What prompted you to study the manifold and dialectical ways in which the verbal and visual intersected with with and with one another in contextually specific ways, particularly for photographers, subjects, and audiences in 19th century San Francisco, as well as abroad? And what roles did roles did the so-called Argonauts and capitalist ideology play in the reproducibility and dissemination of the visual image? So I'll start with your first question. I, you know, this is going to sound like out of left field, I, I suppose, but I have always been a very visually oriented person from a very young age. So my first instinct in thinking about that first question about what prompted me to study this intersection between the verbal and the visual goes far back in my life to my childhood. I used to sit on the floor of my living room and one by one pull the records out of my parents' box full of their you know, 1960s and 70s record collection. Uh, of classic rock albums, and I would stare at the covers. I, I, from a very young age, was extremely interested in these images and what they might mean or say, either about the music that was contained within the records or the people who were creating it or the words that combined with the imagery. And so I I remember that my favorite album was... uh, Cheap Thrills, um, Big Brother and the Holding Company and Janis Joplin from 1968. And it was done by R. Crumb, famous artist um, of that uh, Haight-Ashbury movement in the 60s. And it was the 17-panel cover, um, 18 if you count his seal of approval from Hell's Angels, Frisco, as he wrote. Um, and I, I just knew that it was somehow titillating, that it was a cartoon, but it wasn't the kind of cartoon that was intended for children. I, I, I remember understanding that much that there were a whole range of codes and signs embedded within it. And um, I wanted to know more from a very early age. And I guess that never really left me. I, I think that by nature or by tradition, most historians tend to be much more comfortable with textual sources than other genres of evidence, uh, such as images, sounds, or material objects. And even those scholars who specialize in other genres, such as art historians, up until very recently, art historians, and this is still to some extent true, focused on uh, what they would consider to be aesthetically uh, refined objects, objects that are considered true artworks, as opposed to what they might call vernacular art, um, if it constitutes art at all. Um, So this would be snapshot photography or average portrait photography, as opposed to the work of a Stieglitz or a Georgia O'Keeffe painting, as opposed to an amateur work. Um, So because of that sort of uh, hierarchical understanding of aesthetics and uh, of artwork, you had this huge realm of pictorial production that invariably came into play with texts like captions or letters in which people expressed what they felt and thought about these images that had gone largely unexamined um, by many scholars, but particularly historians um, in any kind of serious way. And so I really started 
becoming curious about that and examining it further in graduate school at Berkeley. Um, and then I think there's, there's this additional component that helps to explain not merely my own personal fascination with the visual medium, but with a, a human predisposition towards sight. And I built on the work of um, scholars like Berkeley's uh, own Martin Jay, who wrote about how sight became particularly important to Homo erectus once we began standing on our hind legs. Freud conjectured that this was really the foundational moment of um, human civilization um, and uh, that sight enabled us to differentiate and assimilate external stimuli in a way that was far superior to the other four senses. Um, so vision was the last of the human senses to develop fully. It's still the last of the senses to develop in the fetus. I write in the introduction to my book about how the eye possesses far more nerve endings and operates at a much greater speed than any other sense organ and at the fastest rate of assimilation among the entire sensorium. Um, and so what really began to drive that interest in this, you know, potentially very long-standing biological predisposition towards or fascination with sight among human beings um, was some of the theoretical work done since the so-called visual turn uh, in the scholarship of W.J.T. Mitchell, who teaches here at Chicago, was a really foundational figure in visual culture studies. And certainly for me as a graduate student, I'll never forget, you know, reading his line about how vision is not simply a mechanical operation of the eyeball but a complex cognitive process that has to be learned. So each society throughout time shapes our, our own seemingly individual perspectives and therefore our response to a given image. The way I often explain this to my students is many of us have received email uh, forwards that are supposed to be implicitly funny and they um, often contain outdated pictures from fashion catalogs. Um, what was once a very fashionable uh, men's suit in the 1970s uh, often takes on this very comical air today. It looks you know, ridiculous to people. How did anybody ever think that a powder blue tuxedo was a good idea? But the whole point is that the reason we can so often date certain um, pictures and family photo albums is that they evoke larger understandings contextual understandings about what's fashionable, hip, cool, or modern for any given time period. And these might seem like individual choices um, for the people who picked out that outfit that day, but they're embedded in these much larger systems that really fascinate me. So in terms of your second question um, about the role that Argonauts and capitalist ideology played in this reproducibility and dissemination of the visual image, the gold rush was an early and perhaps actually one of the very earliest incarnations of globalization in what was already a burgeoning capitalist system. Of course, scholars still debate about you know, exactly when capitalism really takes hold. Is it Adam Smith? Is it earlier? Um, is it you know, sometime around the late 18th century? I'm not going to dive into that particular debate here, but I just want to note that uh, historian Eric Hobsbawm began his study of international capital flows in 1848 because of the gold rush and notes the ways in which Marx and Engels uh, uh, corresponded with one another about having to account for this phenomenon of sudden um, species discoveries like the gold rush in their theorization. Um, so the gold rush was perhaps um, one of the very earliest incarnations of this globalization. 
And I think that my research demonstrates that visual media were uh, essentially a central means by which average people, Americans and people from around the world, navigated this bewildering host of changes that were taking hold around them in that moment. Um, images were inextricably associated with all of these huge world-changing forces, the Industrial Revolution and concomitant changes in transportation, communication. The most rapid urbanization in, in American history was between 1820 and 1850, the most rapid rate of urbanization. Um, so images are bound up with these transformations, but they also possessed special cultural qualities that gave them new meaning and new value. And in that sense, I think they really embodied Marx's concept of commodity fetishism. And so, um, you know, what's really fascinating to me is that, you know, uh, just at this particular moment amidst all of these changes, uh, the gold rush really prompts um, a, a um, a long-term and long-distance separation of friends and loved ones that ensured San Francisco a really critical, but until now, largely overlooked role in the history of the visual medium. Because photography is introduced to the world formally in 1839 in Paris. It had been sort of in development in a number of different continents um, during that time, but it spreads incredibly rapidly all around the world. Um, and the gold rush really catalyzes, accelerates, and dramatically expands the pre-existing trade networks through which photography was sort of spread around the world. Um, and migrants come from all of these different places around the world, every continent except Antarctica, and descend on San Francisco, which made it the second largest passenger receiving port in the United States and more than quadrupled the population of California in the decade leading up to the Civil War. So you've already alluded to this, so you can answer this quite briefly. But um, if you have anything to elaborate on, how and why was the gold rush the first international event to take advantage of photographic innovations and image replication on a truly mass scale, particularly in San Francisco? So here it might just be good for me to review um, the rapidity and the breadth of photography spread around the world, um, which I, I do in the introduction to my book. Um, but it, I mean, it really is a marvel that even in this age of enhanced transportation networks, the transportation revolutions of increasing mobility of international exchange, um, it really is something of a marvel as I write in my book, the, the speed with which photography spreads around the world. So the details of the process, as I mentioned uh, before, were formally presented to the world in August 1839 at this joint meeting of the Academy of Science and the Academy of Fine Arts in Paris. Um, within a month, Daguerre's instruction manual arrived in the United States. I should say that Louis-Jacques uh, Mondet Daguerre is formally credited with the invention of photography. He had a partner at Niesefor Nieps whose name I am probably butchering. I apologize to all of the French speakers. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but he's sort of formally designated as uh, this inventor, or at least receives the uh, honor of having the process eponymously named for him. So the first version of photography, which is not mass reproducible, is known as the daguerreotype or daguerreotype. Um, and so his Daguerre's instruction manual arrives in the United States within a month of this formal uh, an announcement um, in Paris. Um, 
And within 10 years, there are some 2,000 daguerreotypists taking pictures across the country. Uh, in October, you have uh, an English language weekly reporting news of the invention in Macau. Less than a month later, it arrives in Africa. Uh, China's Canton Press and uh, British India's Bombay Times are publishing articles about the, the technique in December. At the end of 1839, Louis Prelier is aiming his camera at the port of Veracruz in Mexico. And another Frenchman is demonstrating the new process in Rio de Janeiro, Bahia, and Montevideo in South America. By 1840, there are daguerreotypists throughout South America and a photographic exhibition in Calcutta. Um, by 1841, a ship captain took the first daguerreotype in Australia. Daguerreans may have begun taking portraits of Hispanic Californios in Mexican California in 1842. By 1843, photographers are setting up shop in Singapore. In 1845, the first daguerreotype galleries open in Honolulu in Hong Kong by 1846. And the new medium comes to New Zealand and Japan by 1848, which is, of course, the same year that gold deposits are discovered in the Sierra Nevada foothills. So I think you start to see how this process lines up with the international migration that is the gold rush and really situates it perfectly to become that first international event to take advantage of these new technological innovations in photography um, on what was a truly mass scale. Because photographs become mass reproducible with what's known as the wet plate process. And that's devised in England. Um, in the early 1850s, it's, it's already in San Francisco um, by 1854-55, um, incredibly quickly, just as the spread of the original technology um, happened, uh, disseminated very quickly. Um, and so that's really the moment of mass production, which many scholars familiar with ben Walter Benjamin and his work on the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction since been retranslated slightly differently. Of, uh, technological reproducibility, they will understand that this is really supposed to be um, a, a, a seminal moment and is, I agree with Benjamin, um, in many ways. Um, there's something really interesting happening there. But I do think that photography itself, even in the daguerreotype process uh, or the ambrotype or tintype processes, which are not um, mass reproducible unless you make uh, a, a photograph or a carte de visite of the original, um, that they themselves were of incredible significance in this larger cultural story about human identity, consumption, and commodification. Um, that people are commissioning portraits, particularly pictures of people, on a huge scale. So even if they aren't immediately mass reproducible, um, the human fascination with and engagement with this new medium cannot go underestimated, particularly in the United States. What was the significance of what's described as seeing the elephant on lithograph letter sheets? And how did such images incite myriad emotions of discovery in an experimental but capricious economy that included gambling halls and saloons? Can you provide examples, perhaps from your su supplemental site for the book? This is a perfect opportunity for me to plug uh, consumingidentities.com, one word, Consuming Identities, the same as the book. Um, this is the free book companion website that I set up in order for people not only to discover the book itself, but to provide both um, any student of history, really, uh, but especially teachers and their students with an opportunity to really get a sense 
for the rich resources that exist in archives uh, around the country, if not also internationally, um, and particularly the uh, innovations that have been made in um, digital scanning, high resolution digital scanning in many cases, that really enable us to zoom in on some of these rich illustrations from our past and uncover so many valuable uh, details and tidbits that may have gone overlooked otherwise. Um, so on consumingidentities.com, you'll find images, additional images from each chapter of the book. And the book actually has camera icons throughout to refer readers to the website for these additional pictures above and beyond what's already printed as illustrations in the book. Um, so figure 1.11 is a good example of this phenomenon of seeing the elephant. Um, it's a letter sheet by Cadez Orion, uh, The Miner's Ten Commandments, a new version, including a preamble, bylaws, and decree, um, allegedly by Cadez Orion. Um, and this was printed by San Francisco lithographers Britton and Ray um, sometime in the early 1850s, 1853 to 5. Um, and it was one of a number of unauthorized reproductions of this extremely popular letter sheet called the Miner's Ten Commandments. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and uh, it has a man on the central um, illustration uh, riding um, a, an elephant um, and a, a couple of other illustrations um, in the side panels. And so the obvious question might be, well, you know, and this is a recurring theme. You see elephants uh, on a number of these gold rush letter sheets, um, this illustrated stationery that essentially predates the postcard um, in the antebellum era. And it's extremely popular um, even throughout and after the Civil War. Um, it has a distinct incarnation in California. So I should probably explain that before I explain what an elephant is doing in gold rush California. Um, these are relatively inexpensive. Uh, pieces of stationery. So the price could range anywhere from five to 50 cents a sheet. They were easily mass reproduced by publishers who catered to the avid demand. Uh, these are usually either woodcut illustrations or lithographs. Lithography was another new image reproduction technology that uh, begins in 1798 in Europe and quickly makes its way over to the United States. Um, and I explained, I should say, all of these image production processes in what I hope is a, a helpful glossary in the back of my book for people that are curious about all of the different terminology, daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, lithographs. Um, and I sorted that glossary uh, chron chronologically. Um, so before 1855, mail was paid for upon receipt and extant post postal regulations made letter sheets a really cost-effective and attractive option for correspondence. And there are, is obviously a huge number of correspondence involved in a mass migration like the gold rush, all of these thousands of predominantly young men who are suddenly separated from their friends, their families, their communities, many of them for the first time in their lives. Um, and so gold rush letter sheets were seldom printed in color, but scholars have long commented on their exceptional artistic quality. They had a balanced representation of detail and the California artists really strove for a sort of linear perspective um, that that created uh, something of a three-dimensional effect, strove for verisimilitude. Um, and somewhere between 340 and 750 different sheets are thought to have been produced, 
primarily by firms operating in San Francisco and a few smaller ones in uh, Sacramento and the surrounding um, area. Um, and then Eastern firms also supplemented those sheets and they would often acquire their artwork from associates in, in California. Um, but they, those sheets tended to differ in content, quality, and quantity from their Western counterparts. Few of them were mass produced. Most were printed on low quality paper. And tellingly, the overwhelming majority depicted sort of serene views rather than caricatures, comics, uh, or historic events. Um, and so this phenomenon of the elephant appears in a number of the Western sheets specifically. Um, and it's essentially uh, an evocative metaphor throughout San Francisco's gold rush period. The elephant represented the wisdom and authority that one derived from direct participation, uh, which is obviously embedded within the metaphor. It's a visual term, right? Seeing the elephant. So it's predicated on visual observation and the sensation of grasping a concept, an event from firsthand knowledge. And it underscored this comical naivete of the so-called greenhorn. A greenhorn was a common 19th century term for any rookie, any novice, but it really takes on a special valence, I think, in the gold rush context, because there were so many greenhorns. These were individuals lacking the wisdom of a veteran, particularly a veteran miner who had seen the elephant, um, who uh, these people embodied. The greenhorn was one who embodied innocence, naivete, um, that all fortune seekers at one time probably possessed in order to make the trip in the first place. And so this gold rush imagery captured this paradox between lived experience and visual vicariousness, because for the seasoned veterans and the curious onlookers, it cataloged the irreplaceable interactions that constituted seeing the elephant. So people are buying these letter sheets and sending them to their hometowns where their families and their friends are allegedly seeing the elephant that is, you know, on the surface of it, you're looking at this letter sheet with the elephant and then reading letters from people that are engaged in this process and describing what California is really like or what digging for gold is actually like. And they're trying to vicariously get some sense of it. But the underlying metaphor is that you can't get a sense of it. To see the elephant, you have to be there firsthand. You can't experience this vicariously um, that so many of these purportedly authentic manuals or um, guides to the gold fields were what P.T. Barnum would have called humbug, um, were fantastical fantasies of, of San Francisco's streets paved with gold and giant gold nuggets at every other corner. And the reality was much more sobering. And that usually accompanies this narrative of what it meant to see the elephant. Um, I have a, a very long footnote, I should say, in the original dissertation on this topic that I wrote at Berkeley that goes back into the uh, etymology of the phrase itself. And there are multiple explanations uh, of what it meant before the gold rush. So um, as most Americans may have understood it, the metaphor referred to a farmer who witnessed an elephant for the first time in his life as it led a circus parade into his local town. Uh, I should say that elephants were somewhat commonplace in those kinds of circus parades by the late 1830s. And the elephant allegedly, in this one version of the origins of this expression, the elephant startled the farmer's horses and caused them to run away, overturning his wagon full of produce that was bound for the market. But the farmer was nonetheless thrilled to have seen the elephant. And I think that's a particularly telling 
description of where this phrase comes from, because the notion is that a uh, misfortune has befallen this poor farmer, right? His entire um, uh, wagon of produce has been upturned by this elephant, but the residual that he receives, the sort of uh, consolation prize, is this irreplaceable phenomenon of having seen the elephant firsthand. Um, the original elephant actually may have been a full-scale plaster version that was in Paris at the Place de la Bastille. It was a placeholder for this monumental statue that Napoleon wanted to install. The bronze for the statue never arrived, and the fast deteriorating model essentially remained on display between 1814 and 1846, which is, of course, two years before the gold rush begins. Um, so that may be where the phrase comes from. There's a considerably older Indian tale about six wise blind men of Indostan who each felt one part of an elephant and assumed that the entire animal appeared the same way as their respective parts. Um, and uh, so a poet, John Godfrey Sachs, resurrected that tale in 1887 when he wrote The Blind Men and the Elephant. And then there's one more, one more intriguing origin story um, a 17th century English expression, to see the lions. Anyone who's been to the Tower of London knows that they kept a whole menagerie of exotic pets, or not pets, exotic animals there on display. And the lions um, were, uh, were a central component of that uh, menagerie. And so one who had seen the lions in this English expression was one who had had the experience of life. Um, so it referred to things of note, celebrity or curiosity, sites worth seeing. And that was employed in England as early as 1590. How and why did webs of meeting for stereotyping shift during the gold rush, particularly in regards to images of diverse encounters and ethnic homogenization among Chinese immigrants and native peoples, racial classifications in photography, the so-called American masculine archetype of the individual minor, as well as the visual sub subversion of social hierarchies. So by the 1820s, stereotyping emerges as a, uh, a popular innovation in the American printing process. So you could essentially reproduce important items like banknotes with allegedly unforgeable results. There's a whole other literature in terms of print culture as to just how unforgeable they really were. That's a separate story. Um, but the metal stereotype plate had a mold of the original block of type. It was one plate per page. And so the plates were placed in a printing press. Printing presses are working at much more rapid speeds. They're steam powered by um, the time you get into the 1830s. Everything is happening faster um, and on larger scales, essentially. Um, and so these plates, these stereotype plates could be stored and reused uh, thousands of times, essentially, until they wore out. So the term stereotype, um, the verb, is subsequently employed somewhere around mid-century and thereafter to describe a concretized concept, something constantly repeated without change. Of course, it's inspired by this printing technology. And by sometime, at least according to the Oxford English Dictionary, sometime by the early 20th century, stereotype had taken on the more negative valence with which we associate it today. That is, a preconceived or oversimplified idea about the characteristics that typify a person, a situation, attitude based on such a, a preconception. So uh, without the textual reprinting of tracks on racial difference or supposedly inherent characteristics, 
And particularly, I would argue, the mass circulation of images caricaturing specific races, uh, oversimplified notions of race and human difference would not have been conveyed so effectively across particularly the Western world. Um, so this was not merely illustrative, but descriptive. Through these images, these representations of categories of humanity, um, you had an expanding variety of publications that could anchor internal traits, personality characteristics, um, and a distorted view of a person's very humanity to an equally distorted depiction of his or her physical features. So by printing thousands of impressions from a single plate, authors and publishers could empower a given image, such as a depiction of an archetypal minor or an entire race of people, to become an oversimplified caricature that allegedly um, or that often could replace the complexities of real life human interactions in viewers' minds. Um, and I think that proved doubly true for groups that were excluded from the privileges associated with whiteness in American society. Um, so some of the caricatures I discuss in the first two chapters of my book uh, clearly stripped entire uh, ethnic or racial groups of their complexity and depth, and other depictions um, actually indicated their humanity, or by dint of their existence and the market for such images, they at least acknowledged this widespread inter-ethnic and interracial curiosity on both sides of these various uh, cultural or racial divides that existed in American society. Um, so that very curiosity really undergirded this um, public fascination with an unease, particularly about the photographic medium, because it was so unprecedentedly detailed. Um, so even as gold rush images tended to objectify groups like the Chinese or homogenize them as a race of seemingly identical facial characteristics or dress and behavior, as I discuss in reference to some letter sheets, for instance, in the first chapter of my book, they also attested to the Chinese presence and participation in the gold rush. Um, and so even as the gold rush phenomenon died down by the late 18, certainly by the mid to late 1850s, the images retained their potency um, for this human deluge that came through San Francisco. And so I argue that photography complicated narratives about white supremacy or racial stereotyping that were often crafted through the hands of artists who could distort human features and characteristics because photography was so detailed and complex and compelling. It didn't lend itself to these oversimplifications or acts of stereotyping, even though people often coupled photographs with very distorted um, captions that could do some work of distortion um, or derision. Um, so this is where I differ from scholars like Martin Berger. Um, he contended that the visual field powerfully confirms previously internalized beliefs. Now, that may certainly be true, but images um, don't merely confirm those internalized um, beliefs. I think that they can also, um, they can create subconscious or conscious assumptions and beliefs, particularly where new generations are concerned. So visual caricature has proven a very powerful tool in the indoctrination of children into a society's dominant prejudices. And in fact, as an initiator or perpetuator of said prejudices. So it need not be the sole device for such indoctrinations, but it is composed an integral one, often intertwined with the influence of one's peers or parents uh, or the society at large with uh, forms of humor uh, or so pseudoscientific racism. Um, and the same might be said 
for large portions of the United States population in the gold rush era who had yet to encounter a Chinese person or, uh, say, a Pacific Coast uh, Native American person by the time of the gold rush. Um, So imagery was not simply a new medium through which whites could reiterate and circulate new evidence for their claims of racial superiority. In the daguerreotypes and the letter sheets, whites themselves revealed a considerable degree of ambivalence, not simply over the new photographic technology, but over the very concept of civilization and progress itself. There were new trajectories of visual culture taking hold that reiterated the image's meaning and power for residents of the gold rush metropolis and their far-flung families and associates. Um, White male authors and self-declared pioneers tried to champion their own version of history by essentially relegating minorities to a marginalized role in this internationally famous event. Um, And they essentially tried to, predominantly boosters and entrepreneurs, um, tried to subsume class identity behind this uh, allegedly classless concept of of the minor archetype. Um, So this is a a complicated dynamic. It was never entirely unidirectional. Pre-existing racial ideologies could certainly inform the popular reception of these commodified images of archetypal white miners, Chinese miners, uh, and others. But images could also inform or complicate or contradict those beliefs by introducing new concepts into the historical record. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a fraught process. It's tricky. Um, and I'm happy to go into more detail. Um, So on that note, how and why did commemorative archetypal uh, photography, portraitures of masculine transgressions as well as sinful behavior, and myriad panoramas all captivate audiences into the American gold rush fantasy? In your response, uh, you can you, know, you can address families abroad, identity, female spectacle, Latinx stereotypes, African-American subversion, and Chinese engagement. So I, I should say that another distinguishing feature of the California or the Western uh, letter sheets of the gold rush was their employment of humor and often very tawdry or bawdy kinds of humor. And you'll find examples of this in chapter one, uh, the images on the book companion website. Um, there are caricatures of drunken miners who are concerned that their horse's head has been cut off when they're really just riding backwards and clearly inebriated. Uh, There are plenty of um, close-up examinations of gambling saloons, as they were called, um, which on the face of it seem somewhat anthropological. They have a a keen eye for detail and seem to anticipate their audience's curiosity about what these places look like without always condemning them, either in the captions or anywhere else. Sometimes they seem very straightforwardly, uh, almost anthropological descriptions uh, or visualizations uh, of what this looked like because there was such avid curiosity on the part of family and friends, uh, all sorts of communities uh, in points scattered around the world about what this looked like. So Anglo-American and European miners, when they posed for their own gold rush portraits, they appropriated, they often appropriated Latin American dress and language as part of this transgressive role play and their own outward transformations during the gold rush. So it's somewhat bound up with the same kinds of transgressions that to some extent at least 
are unapologetically portrayed in the lithographed or uh, wood engraved letter sheets. Um, the notion that men did carouse, they drank, they may have gone to uh, fancy balls, fandangos with beautiful young women who were not necessarily considered white. Many, in many cases, they were uh, Latina women, um, you know, uh, from uh, Mexican California had been uh, constituted the United States West had acquired essentially half of Mexico's territory with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in February 1848, which was signed unbeknownst to the diplomats just two weeks after James Marshall and the Miwok Native Americans employed at Sutter's Mill uh, discovered the first gold nuggets. So this is bound up with that uh, that sense of transgression, of release, um, that uh, these men appropriated this dress, this costume, as they uh, often called it in their own correspondence, um, either despite or because of the fact that whites often denigrated uh, Latinos or Hispanic culture um, for their perceived failure to capitalize on the riches of California. This is either during the uh, Spanish colonial era or the subsequent period of uh, the Mexican independence after 1821. Um, and so California Pioneer Society members, um, these were typically Anglo-American or European-American uh, Argonauts uh, who formed their own sort of societies to preserve a very specific version of the past um, in the late 19th century. They recalled that the Argonauts uh, were proud of their curling mustaches and flowing beards, their bandit-looking sombreros, uh, as they called it as they posed for portraits to send back home. And they had photographers like their friend, uh, Henry William Bradley, who later uh, partnered with Rulofsen into a very profitable partnership in San Francisco, that these men, these photographers, uh, accumulated plenty of money by recording these portraits for posterity, by recording this act of role play that was multiplied by the thousands because you had upwards of 80,000 people streaming through San Francisco in um, the boom year of 1849 alone. Um, so 19th century accounts never exactly clarified how Anglo-Americans or Europeans came to understand their costume as Mexican dress, save perhaps through their own observations in California or circulated lithographic and other artistic renderings of Mexicans. Uh, or perhaps of des descriptions of encounters during the recent Mexican-American War. Um, but this role play was widely understood as a foundational part of the departure from established or quickly concretizing Anglo-American standards of dress, behavior, and identity. So it was this cultural counterpart of a physical distance from home for these men. And the migrants, along with their expectant audiences, appropriated accessories and forms of dress that they deemed Mexican in order to construct their own particular minor archetype, a conduit to forms of expression and experience that were otherwise forbidden or cast beyond the strictures of their class and racial identity, particularly when you consider that the majority of gold rushers were members of the white collar or middle class because it required uh, a substantial amount of uh, savings or disposable income in order to purchase the necessary tickets and make the journey required either from the Eastern seaboard, from the American South, or from really any other point of destination around the world in order to get to San Francisco in the first place. Um, 
So this really was a release for anybody who was accustomed to very rigid Victorian concepts of what was deemed respectable back home, uh, whether that was a white collar clerkship or something uh, along similar lines in terms of shaving your beard, keeping your hair a certain length, um, or of making sure that you never have crumpled, rumpled, uh, rolled up shirt sleeves, muddy boots, and the like. And so they would revel in their uh, flouting of all of those conventions. And you read that in their letters, and you can see it in the way that they proudly pose for the camera. Um, And so this is an environment overwhelmingly dominated by young men, And photographs literally took the place of women and children in that context. Um, So these women and children, particularly white women and children, are contained within this two-dimensional realm of imagery. Um, And gold rushers also relished the rare interpersonal encounter with the opposite sex. But those interactions, as I describe in my book, are often described in the same language of spectatorship as that employed when minors wrote about gazing at photographs. So the sources actually tend to mention very little in the way of interpersonal interaction or conversation. It's the visual spectacle of this demographic rarity because white women and children were so rare in Gold Rush era California um, that they earned a place in the Gold Rush literature and in subsequent lore. So these stories of minors staring agog at women um, filled letters home and they also filled later published accounts of the period, perhaps most famously in Mark Twain's book, Roughing It. Um, So male Californians' reaction to women in the flesh may have also been exacerbated not only by distance, by longing, by lust, but by their frustrations with this ultimately unrealizable photographic medium. You can only carry the virtual reality so far, staring at your fiancé or your wife. Um, Obviously, it will inevitably, invariably bump up against the limitations of verisimilitude. So in terms of the Chinese community of San Francisco, um, they engage in the visual culture industry. They sat for portraits. We have evidence of um, baby pictures of young uh, Chinese boys in San Francisco that are in my book. Um, And they must have distributed these pictures to friends and loved ones um, in Chinatown, perhaps also to uh, their respective hometowns overseas. I should say here that generations of scholars have been unable to locate such letters. And there are uh, historians of Chinese immigration that have searched for upwards of 30 years. Um, But we know that uh, from Methodist missionary William Taylor, um, that there of the two windows in the San Francisco post office during the gold rush, one of them um, at Clay and DuPont streets was reserved for the army and Navy, the French, Spanish, Chinese clergy, and the ladies. Uh, And then in the early 1850s, that office shipped mail dispatches to China twice a month. Uh, But we haven't been able to find those letters. Um, And so it's this tantalizing and missing piece of the puzzle, essentially, in terms of what uh, Chinese gold rushers were saying about these images. Were they able to include them in uh, their correspondence home? Uh, We just don't know. Um, I can say, as I detail in the book in the second chapter, that long after the gold deposits in the foothills had dried up, and that was really 1853, 54, in terms of placer mining, uh, before you bring in the huge uh, mining companies with their hydraulic equipment, second half of the 1850s, uh, that long after that, photographers are still producing these uh, memorializations of the gold rush and doing so 
in ways that sought to commodify the exoticism of, of communities like the Chinese. So in 1873, Bradley and Rulifson produced a stereograph series called Mining Scenes in California. And um, this was one of the, uh, as they advertised themselves, the largest and best appointed galleries on the Pacific coast. They had a very prestigious reputation. But in this series, they included several images of Chinese miners, uh, captioned as the heathen Chinese prospecting or the heathen Chinese with pick and rocker. Uh, the third one was Celestial Diggins, Mongolian Flat in 1849. And all of these, th- those three images are printed um, in my work. Um, and you essentially see these archetypal pictures of men doing the active work of mining, although they were probably posing for the camera because you had to hold still for a certain number of seconds those days in order for the exposure time to catch you as anything other than a blur. Um, but there's really very little to distinguish them as Chinese men. Their faces are not readily visible in these images. Um, it's really just the characteristic conical hat, um, straw hat that's worn by one of the two miners in these images that denotes them as Chinese. That and, of course, the uh, very disparaging captions, um, which are themselves derived uh, from Bret Hart's famous Gold Rush uh, stories and other uh, print culture that uh, characterized uh, the Chinese along similar terms. Um, so almost all the Chinese people in the country were living in California from the antebellum period through 1860. By 1870, the census reported that 78% um, of more than 63,000 Chinese residents in the U.S. made their home in California. Over a third of those were recorded in San Francisco. Um, And the 1870 census also located more than a quarter of all enumerated Native Americans in California. Um, So while racial and ethnic conflicts were commonplace in this incredibly diverse environment, you have these uh, catalogings of these communities and subsequent productions on the part of San Francisco photographers. Um, And it complicates some of what we might know or think we know about how this played out. There's clearly a great deal of public curiosity about these groups. Otherwise the photographers themselves never would have commodified their imagery or or produced these kinds of series well into the late 19th century. Um, in terms of the African-American community, um, I could say that it was extremely small in California, um, uh, but a handful of African-Americans had been living there since about 1818. Um, and of course, there were aspects of discrimination built into the state law and municipal codes. Um, in 1854, the California Supreme Court ruled that an 1850 law barring Native Americans or Blacks from testifying against whites should also be extended to prohibit uh, Chinese and all other people not white, according to the language of the law. And those racialized concepts only become more strident and entrenched in the decades that follow the Civil War because racial prejudice couples with a troubled economy. There's a national economic panic in 1873, and you have Western working class unrest directing its attention at the most numerous, noticeable, and visible or visibly differentiable local minority. But given all of that, it's particularly interesting to me that Bradley and Rulofsen would um, print their uh, mining scenes series in that very year of the National Depression, 1873. Um, They're clearly channeling elements of uh, this controversy as it is emerging and arising with the working men's movement and other 
xenophobic calls for bans on uh, Chinese immigration. Um, I could say more about the dynamics uh, of the gold rush in terms of the, there's a random chance at, at hitting it, at striking it rich. Um, it's very much like capitalism in that sense. It's not necessarily a straightforward meritocracy. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, random and unpredictable luck that might go into it, even if you do couple it with some sense of a work ethic that's required. Um, nobody can predict where uh, the gold veins might be uh, uncovered. Um, and so, you know, it, it's interesting in that sense, thinking about the dynamics of race in what was clearly a white supremacist society. Um, so, you know, uh, images documented black miners' efforts along with Chinese and, uh, and other. Uh, Latin American um, or, or Latin immigrant miners, um, their efforts to strike it rich. Um, and there was essentially, uh, you know, a, 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 the nature of this backbreaking labor that is required or the race blind stroke of random chance that could bestow a mother load on one miner and little to nothing uh, on the person in the next claim over. Um, that chance that fortune might reward any miner at any time only furthered Anglo-Americans' determination to carve out special advantages for themselves by erecting legal and extra-legal barriers against minorities, incarnated in the foreign miners' tax, incarnated in all manner of discriminatory legislation, but also, of course, in the form of racial violence in the gold camps and in San Francisco itself. How and why did families abroad, those specters of counterfeit images, um, Asian photographers as well as subjects, which you've already discussed, uh, shifting notions of accuracy, female domestic performance, and those Daguerrean saloons all interweave cultures of consumption with cultures of perception across a, a really cotton nettle San Francisco. So this gold rush metropolis is the hub of a massive international and domestic migration, and it really becomes the revolving door of a city. Um, it brings together this overwhelmingly young and overwhelmingly male group of settlers from every continent on the globe, as I, I think I said before, with the exception of Antarctica. Um, and through those channels, over a quarter of a million people come through the city in four years. Um, and the photographer's mainstay uh, was portraits of individual clients, pictures of people. And San Francisco's competitive climate prompted many of these photographers to try and obtain an edge in the marketplace by touting their own experience and skill, as well as stirring up public fears about allegedly inferior likenesses that would not do their subjects justice or that would not stand the test of time, um, which are two of the very central concerns on the part of the picture-taking public, um, and perhaps remain so. Um, so those tactics evoked broader cultural concerns that were taking hold in urban America, um, really throughout America during the second half of the 19th century, about the relative value and accuracy of a portrait, of what traits, internal traits, uh, a portrait evoked uh, or might evoke over time, this question of appearance versus substance. Um, so San Francisco entrepreneurs catered to public demand by marketing images of the people, the places, and the races who captured the most public interest, uh, particularly celebrities, uh, but also the Chinese, uh, Western landscapes to some extent. And Chinese photographers also opened their own studios in the city during this period. Many Chinese clients, as I've said, commissioned portraits. Um, 
And it, it, so this gets really tricky because some of those portraits cannot be neatly categorized in the genre of private portraiture because some of them were marketed as racial types. Um, so within the context of San Francisco, the means of procurement, um, image prices and the sellers uh, were often written directly onto the lower portion of marketed photographs. And I argue that that literally facilitated this culture of consumption by capitalizing upon a culture of perception. Um, and that that was especially true within the condensed metropolitan neighborhoods of 19th century America. And San Francisco provided, in many respects, an even greater opportunity within that group because of its unique demographics, because of its free-flowing supply of hard currency as a result of the gold rush. Nothing could be more ideal for a producer and a retailer of visual ephemera than this revolving door of a city which teemed with thousands of new and very wide-eyed arrivals and sentimental departures every day. So many photographers relied upon street-level signs and images that were directly aimed at passersby. And William Shu, who becomes one of the most prolific and prominent photographic entrepreneurs in the city, filled his Montgomery Street studio windows with large, oval-framed portraits of men and women in order to attract customers from the streets. He displayed a number of smaller framed images to demonstrate the range of available sizes and their potential uh, portability. He mounted a series of carte de visites, uh, which were all the rage by the 1860s. These are essentially baseball cards, uh, cardstock backed, um, very portable images you could fit in your pocket. Um, he would put those on a column outside his shop door. He may have displayed pictures on the two lampposts that were directly across from the studio. And this is the 1860s. So I should say that this culture of consumption um, predicated on a culture of perception continues for decades after the actual gold rush has subsided. Um, it has a very potent legacy in a place like San Francisco. Um, and I think has a, a really telling legacy for the future of an increasingly urban um, American society as well. Um, so long before Shu occupies this uh, prominent studio in the heart of the financial district. Um, he opened for business in what he advertised as his movable daguerreotype saloon. Saloon is a very uh, interesting word, particularly in terms of the American etymology. Um, it's commonly associated, obviously, uh, particularly in the gold rush with gambling halls, places of, of drinking and, and uh, of, of wagering. Um, but photographers probably smartly appropriated it for their uh, photographic studios as well. And essentially, this was a white trailer that Shu had shipped around uh, Cape Horn, the tip of South America, in 1851. Um, and by that summer, the local newspaper reported that a good deal of curiosity was expressed with regard to his big wagon, which fills up a large portion of uh, the city's central square, Portsmouth Plaza, which is if you know San Francisco today, right in the heart of Chinatown. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So uh, Shu was later photographed in his saloon on Washington Street alongside the newspaper offices of the Alta California. And that's image 3.2 and 3.2A, which is a, a close-up uh, crop um, that I included in the book. Um, it's uh, a daguerreotype that really captures this early outpost of San Franciscan photography. You see a long row of sample pictures on the trailer itself and on a black square signboard that's directly out in front. And both are placed very conspicuously at eye level to passersby on the street. And we don't know what these images depict, even with the high resolution scans that we've obtained 
of the daguerreotype from the Open Museum of California. Um, they often marketed views of natural wonders, but Yosemite wasn't depicted until 1855, um, perhaps theatrical ce celebrities, but these are supposed to be examples of the photographer's work, demonstrations of his artistry. Um, and so the photograph is significant because it exemplifies how visual records themselves can serve as primary sources. It provides us with evidence of the ways that publicly displayed images encouraged communal practices of spectatorship in the urban world. And it provides an indication of how those displays fostered sites of male sociability and spaces devoted to a leisure culture that's centered on visual spectacle. So I'm going to combine the next two questions. So the first part is, how did photographs lithographs, portraits, and portrait exchanges mark key stages in the domestic life cycle, from courtship to consummated marriages to anniversaries and then to aging and death? And then second, why did mortality and separation concerns increase demand for, for SF portraits and photographs, both at home and abroad, especially given the effort to sustain youthful argonauts into posthumous memory? So in the fourth chapter of the book, I argue that images were so bound up with the concept of mortality and such potent reminders of this unceasing and irreversible onslaught of time, that they soon came to play a critical role as markers along the key junctures of both individual and family lifespans in 19th century America. They commemorated births, deaths, everything in between. Uh, parents recorded themselves in portraits that were intended as heirlooms for their families. They documented the growth of their school-aged children. Boys made visual declarations of their graduation to manhood by posing in uniform, either as 49ers or as soldiers. Uh, young lovers exchanged portraits and stared at them longingly. Newlyweds documented their unions in visual form. Families consecrated their membership as it expanded or sometimes shrank over the years. And the residents of a far-flung city like San Francisco were all the more reliant on two-dimensional substitutes for their absent kin. And what I think should be most striking about that catalog I just gave you is the way in which it almost completely parallels our own contemporary image-making practices. We continue to take baby portraits, family portraits, school portraits, graduation photos, pictures in uniform, pictures of people we're dating or want to be dating. It's just that now the photographic process has been democratized even more radically than it was then. Um, it, since the innovation, obviously, of the handheld camera in 1888, and now almost everyone in the industrialized world carries around a camera in their hands every day in the form of their smartphone. Um, so in the 21st century, we take pictures on important occasions. We still do that, but we also tend to take them all the time for any reason or for no reason. Um, now, there were some interesting differences in the 19th century, which you alluded to in your question. Postmortem portraiture was definitely a Victorian phenomenon. Um, and I can, uh, talk about that, uh, certainly a bit further. I do want to note that, um, some of the more familiar versions of portrait taking in terms of the life cycle, like, uh, courtship, um, were also a very common phenomenon in the 19th century. So, uh, one early photographer, Abraham Bogardus looked back on his career and would, uh, recalled how Monday was usually the best day for business because young couples would agree to exchange daguerreotypes during their Sunday night courtship. Um, and that we thought matters were progressing favorably when we put the gentleman's picture in a gold locket for somebody to wear. That was a sign of intimacy. It was a sign that someone was attached. Um, and so English writer and entertainer Stephen Massett um, 
who is better known as Jeems Pipes of Pipesville uh, for his newspaper stories, told of an October 1850 steamer day in San Francisco. This is when all the steamer ships would descend on the port. Um, and the Folsom Street Wharf was crowded with reuniting couples, as he described it, including a woman who is married on this, the night of her arrival, the courtship having been done by daguerreotype or letter, which probably isn't all that shocking to contemporaries who themselves may have tried online dating um, or who know people who have. Um, so for photographs, along with lithographs and engraved portraits, they continue to function as tokens of intimacy and affection long after the couples were married or after they were reunited across long distances, as was so often the case in San Francisco. Um, in terms of mortality, so since the Middle Ages, Europeans had employed images called memento mori to keep themselves mindful of life's brevity, of the inevitability of mortality and of God's judgment. And these are, I think, inherently ironic images. Uh, they're supposed to be lasting, um, but they're meant to capture ephemerality. So in the 19th century, particularly with the advent of photography, these postmortem images become more broadly accessible. Death portraits take the place of death masks and paintings that uh, were produced in previous centuries and which, of course, only the elite could afford. And now you have a larger uh, audience, particularly the middle class, um, but, but anyone with disposable income could commission an image of their deceased relative. Um, or sometimes people would pose for pictures standing beside the gravesite of the dead. And there's a beautiful example of that practice in image 4.25 on the book website. So it's from the Henry Huntington Library in California, and it depicts William Daniel standing beside the grave of his older brother, 33-year-old Charles Penniman Daniel in California around 1861 um, when Charles died. And they sent this image back to their family in South uh, Milford, Massachusetts. Um, Charles was the eldest son of Josiah Daniel, a dry goods retailer in Boston, and Sarah Hutchinson, Penniman Daniel. Um, and Charles's own portrait from life is number 4.12 on the book website. So picture taking really became this durable and unprecedentedly detailed aspect of mourning rituals, as well as of life. Um, the pictures served as a means of coping with grief, particularly among the middle class, um, and especially for friends and relatives of um, people who lived in San Francisco, who were perhaps back in um, the Eastern seaboard or in places removed from California. Um, and so this was really one of the only um, means of offering some form of closure, even a simulated one, since they themselves would probably never make it out to California to visit the grave sites of their deceased loved ones. Um, but this was also true for families within San Francisco who took morning portraits of um, young children and babies uh, who had died, uh, again, as a means of preserving their memory and coping with their loss. How did commodified taboo images, erotic print cultures, depictions of tableau vivants, pornography, gambling saloon interiors, and the obscene picture trade all converge to challenge sociocultural mores in a San Francisco economy of sex and, to a certain degree, masculinity? Um, you know, in your response, you can provide examples, perhaps using your site. Um, and if you can really, really briefly address the consequences of the uh, Lambertson, Doyle and Powers cases. OK, I'm going to try to do this quickly. Obviously, this <laughs> is uh, a, a city that will thrive on an economy of vice in multiple forms. I've already mentioned uh, the extremely numerous gambling saloons 
and which were also uh, drinking halls. Um, and those taverns are well known in Gold Rush lore as, as populating um, San Francisco during the Gold Rush period, but actually long thereafter. Um, so uh, in 1899 and long thereafter, the city's newspapers were still decrying, as one headline put it, the moral corruption allowed to flourish unchecked in the so-called wide open town of San Francisco. Um, so even though technologies of spectacle uh, changed over time, the public intrigue, the prurient interest that made them profitable, that remained uh, a very palpable force in this visual economy of the city, even if the arrival of increasing proportions of women, particularly by the late 1850s, 60s, and thereafter, um, interjected more scorn um, or social judgment on some of these practices. Um, it remains a place that is preoccupied um, by the visual economy of sex. By the turn of the 20th century, um, anyone who had a nickel could plunk it into what was called the lewd vitascope to enjoy indecent and outrageous exhibitions at any one of a number of so-called phonograph parlors that were strung along Market and Kearney Streets, which was really the heart of downtown and still is. Um, so Douglas Henry Daniels has observed that San Francisco was said to be the last major American city where commercial society and vice were frank and open commodities well into the prohibition era. Um, and so going back to, uh, earlier in the 19th century, prostitution is clearly a, a essential component of this economy. But what I found particularly interesting in my research was the extent to which there was uh, a visual economy of sex um, that was related to the economy of sex work, of prostitution, but also occupied its own realm um, somewhat distinctively, uh, even apart from prostitution per se. So a, a classic example is this Lambertson Doyle case from the summer of 1864. Um, a man named George Lambertson and a 14-year-old boy, Ralph Doyle, pleaded guilty in San Francisco's police court to the charge of exhibiting obscene pictures. Um, and this case was really considered the tip of the iceberg. Um, one year earlier, another man, Henry Vaughn, was charged with exhibiting and selling obscene pictures, while his counterparts were accused of assault and battery and, quote unquote, tampering with children. So as Lambertson and Doyle are being prosecuted, San Francisco police claim to have uncovered an entire ring of men and boys who had banded themselves together for the purpose of prostituting young girls. This is according to the writing of Samuel Clemens, an outraged young reporter for the San Francisco Daily Morning Call, um, who would, of course, go on to claim a much wider readership under the pseudonym Mark Twain. So Clemens characterized the scheme on, under a front page, column one headline, demoralizing young girls. Um, and he said that the men would use the boys essentially as partners, to decoy the girls to their rooms where their ruin was affected, uh, as these rooms were well stocked with obscene books and pictures. So police had already ascertained the names of uh, some 30 debauched girls, according to this article, uh, and others were suspected, several of them from families of high respectability and ranging in age from 10 to 15. This sounds like a prostitution ring, but what it is, uh, is a ring of, of circulating obscene pictures, uh, essentially for profit. And in his defense, Ralph Doyle claimed that the girls had shown him the obscene pictures, and he was convinced that they have done the seducing in most of the other cases, as they did in his. 
Um, so readers probably would have been left quite curious um, at the hints that, that uh, Clemens dropped in his supposed expose, the teaser that um, all of Doyle's revelations will not do to print. Um, so obscene pictures or pictures that were deemed obscene in the courts were destroyed by law. And there are a few surviving examples, although the Kinsey Institute has very helpfully provided us access um, to some of these, which are up on um, my book companion website um, for this uh, fifth chapter. Um, and regardless of which gender actually exhibited these allegedly obscene pictures in this case, there was this widely accepted notion that emerges from the press about it, that these images perform the work of ruination and the road to prostitution or to a boy succumbing to the entreaties of a prostitute. That's a telling insight into this Victorian culture um, that according to public understanding, looking, the visual uh, engagement with sex was the first step down uh, essentially what was rendered as a slippery slope that would lead to actual physical acts. Um, the uh, you know, um, the consummation of sin, so to speak. So the commercialized sexual image could harness and amplify concupiscent desire, but it could also incite that desire in a viewer, whether he was unsuspecting or not, with physical manifestations of the debauchery that would follow. Um, so I, I provide evidence in the book from James Hutchings, a, a famous uh, entrepreneur and letter sheet publisher, who attends what he describes as a forcible and explicit sermon in San Francisco in June 1855 on the sins of Adam, chiefly the sin of the eye dwelt upon. So the minister exhorted the young men of his flock to avoid looks or prints or observation of the eye calculated in the least to lead him astray. So in that sense, the originary moment of debasement is visual, not physical. Um, and that has really telling implications for this culture and this society writ large. And of course, San Francisco's role as a port of global trade and migration ensured access to erotica from around the world, despite the best efforts of its reformers and its justice system to try and police and outlaw and eliminate these alleged vestiges of gold rush worldliness and permissiveness. Um, so just a couple of examples here. The city's custom house officers seized what they described as an immense number of obscene pictures in June 1859, which were brought from China and consigned to a Chinese house in the city. Um, and the reporter made clear that they were of the, mo of the most villainous character. In 1864, San Francisco police arrested a Frenchman uh, who ran a print shop and fancy store on Clay Street above Kearney. And he was charged with exhibiting pictures of a character too infamous for description uh, in a stereoscope to a little girl who was seen in the store by a police chief. A stereoscope, I should say, was like a 19th century version of the Viewmaster, or Viewfinder. Um, two almost identical images placed alongside one another. When you view them through the stereoscopic viewer, um, they simulate uh, three-dimensionality. So it was another sort of layer of verisimilitude. Um, and then in 1865, more than $5,000 worth of cutlery was confiscated from a leading French importer when it was discovered that a dozen or um, a couple of dozen knives had obscene pictures in the handles uh, and concealed in the center of the box. Um, there were also tableau vivant um, or model, also known as model artist shows um, that were a popular genre in the San Franciscan visual culture industry um, 
so these are dramatizations in which female models breathe life into classical artwork, um, creating a still reenactment. Um, but of course, they were uh, naked or semi-nude in the process. There were some men who appeared in these scenes, um, usually covered from the thigh to the waist. Uh, one Argentinian who saw this spectacle um, commented perhaps too presumptuously that um, that sort of covering up was unnecessary because everyone is really only looking at the women. Um, so, you, you know, you really have these moments uh, of uh, cosmopolitanism that is clearly predicated on this conspicuously diverse population and one that is uh, at, at its point of origins with the gold rush, overwhelmingly male and young, um, that produces a, a very thriving economy of sex that is manifested in explicitly visual ways and not just during the gold rush, but really throughout uh, the second half of the 19th century and well beyond. How and why did San Francisco's committees of vigilance, the county jail, uh, those letter sheet minor archetypes, lithographs, panoramas, mugshot books, uh, the sketches of execution spectators, and postmortem bust images all contribute to the idea of uh, physiogenomic criminality, criminality and the multivalent violence of individual identity? In your response, you can try to discuss uh, one or all, um, you know, the head of Marietta, the 1851 Richardson assassination, 1856 King killing, and that photographic test from the 1864 Smith murder. There's so much to say here. This is, this is one of the reasons why the sixth chapter is among the longest in the book, uh, because there are so many stories to tell about crime and punishment in a revolving door of a city. Um, where the necessity of the mugshot quickly becomes a practicality, um, because how else are you going to police uh, not just the you know inherent anonymity of a city, but a city in which people are constantly coming and going? Um, so what's really interesting to me is that uh, San Francisco is one of the first cities in the world, by my reckoning or according to my research, to employ mugshot photography, but it's actually initially done with the Committee of Vigilance, which is a just what it sounds like. It's a vigilante movement that forms originally in 1851, uh, supposedly because of the uh, irretrievably corrupt justice system of the city. Um, so this is uh, what has been called by scholars uh, like Josiah Royce, a businessman's revolution. Um, so predominantly middle-class leadership, but with a very large membership, both in 1851 and its second incarnation in 1856, um, that takes over the criminal justice system, supplants it, um, albeit temporarily, um, so that they might enact very conspicuously and visibly um, the, instead of a spectacle of injustice or corruption, the spectacle of justice served, um, of reclaiming the city's justice system for quote unquote, the people. Um, there's a lot of politics and scholarship embedded within that larger story. But the fact that they really initiate um, the process of mugshots by contracting with local photographers, both in 1851 and 56, is, I think, particularly telling because they do become, that practice becomes then an inspiration for uh, the regular law and order or the, the San Francisco Police Department to then initiate their own practices of doing much mugshot uh, photography. Um, after 1851, and then again um, after 1856. Um, so 
I, I might just start here. I'll go back to Marietta. Joaquin Marietta um, is a really famous outlaw in California history. Um, in 1853, the California legislature commissioned a Texan named Harry Love to muster a company of rangers and apprehend a group of robbers who were said to be particularly ambitious and ruthless. And not much was known about these bandits. They may have had up to five leaders, all supposedly named Joaquin. Um, so Harry Love and his associates came across a group of Mexicans in the Tulare Lake region. And after a shootout that killed at least two men, they managed to bring one back alive and he was quickly lynched uh, while they decapitated another and preserved his head in a jar. That head, which was first displayed to the public in Stockton, became the source of the Joaquin legend as newspapers reported the death without specifying which Joaquin he was. Um, and so Harry Love and his men claimed that it was Joaquin Murrieta, this very famous outlaw, um, whose story then sort of becomes uh, immortalized in a book by John Roland Ridge. <clears throat> but um, Love and the Rangers could not receive the reward from the California legislature unless they had captured one of the band's leaders, Murrieta, Carrillo, or Valenzuela. So without a mugshot of the bandits or sufficient supporting evidence, nobody could confirm whose head the rangers had carried back in a jar. So the editor of the San Francisco Alta, California, uh, charged that deception was at play, reminded readers of the importance of direct eyewitness testimony. Um, and so he wrote, it is too well known that Joaquin Marietta was not the person killed by Captain Love's party. Um, he said that the head exhibited in Stockton bears no resemblance to that individual, and this is positively asserted by those who have seen the real Marietta and the spurious head. So the editor's choice of words indicates the full extent of the reversal that has taken place here. There is an actual head on display in a jar. What remains um, the subject of public preoccupation is whether that head belonged to the allegedly uh, real Marietta, whose existence as a single identifiable person was taken for granted. And of course, thousands of Californians wanted to see for themselves, even if most of them, the vast majority, didn't know Joaquin Morietta. So for years, the head of Morietta is displayed to gawking audiences. Two of Love's Rangers, Lafayette Black and John Natal, brought the decapitated head to San Francisco in the summer of 1853. It was viewable by paid admission um, at King's on Halleck and Sansom Streets, directly across from the American Theater. So it's directly playing into an urban culture of spectacle and amusement right across from the theater, which is really the center of mass entertainment for the 19th century. Um, there's a prime example of this practice on the Book Companion website. Uh, figure 6.11 is from the USC Digital Library, and it advertises a one-day-only exhibition of the head of Murrieta, along with the hand of another alleged outlaw, three-fingered Jack, uh, in Pleasanton about 1855. And those broadsides employed a particular adeptness in their appeal to popular ruminations over the divide between fact and legend, authenticity and artifice. Um, and so they, the promoters charged people $1 to gaze upon the head and decide for themselves whether it was the real Joaquin, even if, again, few, if any, had known him personally. Um, and they boasted that an acquaintance of Joaquin's had given a sworn statement verifying the identity of the head and they thereby prolonged the public debate and sustained widespread interest in this macabre attraction, very much along the lines of what P.T. Barnum was doing simultaneously in New York. 
So Dr. L.J. Jordan eventually acquired the head for what he called his Pacific Museum of Anatomy and Science on Market Street in San Francisco. And from what I can ascertain, it remained on display there for some 40 years until it was probably destroyed in the earthquake and fire of 1906. And while it was on display, it sat beside an array of exotic specimens that Jordan advertised, a four-legged chicken, grotesque wax figures demonstrating allegedly the horrors of venereal disease, and perhaps most interestingly for this story, assorted other body parts allegedly from infamous criminals. So I write in my book that you have this medieval Christian practice of worshiping relics from the bodies of saints that has now transformed into the private enterprise of a public spectacle centered on gazing at the unholy. Um, in terms of the Vigilance Committee, I'm going to talk about the second incarnation. Um, in the fall of 1855, a well-known Italian gambler, 39-year-old Charles Cora, shot a U.S. Marshal, William Richardson, on Clay Street in San Francisco, outside the Blue Wing Saloon. Cora was defending himself um, and his honor, and the honor of his wife, against public slander, because two nights before the shooting, Richardson's wife, among other women, had objected to the presence of Charles Cora's 29-year-old wife, Arabella Ryan Cora, known as Belle Cora, among the respectable attendees in the most expensive section of the American theater, the box seats. Belle Cora was a wealthy and well-known madam of a notorious brothel, and the controversy over her appearance in a theater suggests that San Francisco was in the midst of this cultural transformation in mid-decade, you had this influx of... Uh, respectable or self-professed respectable middle-class women who wanted to assert their standing and uh, perhaps reassert control over the social order in the city. So Cora's case resulted in a hung jury in January of 1856, and that only provides more fodder for this growing chorus of critics who uh, had decried jury tampering and corruption in the municipal justice system. Then in the spring of 1856, an Irish immigrant named James Casey uh, shoots the, the editor of the local paper, San Francisco Evening Bulletin. Uh, he's known as James King of William because he printed an article condemning Casey in that afternoon's paper. Both of these uh, the incidents that provoked Casey and Cora are predicated on a culture of honor. They focus overwhelmingly on appearances, on reputation, the importance of, of maintaining or reclaiming one's public reputation. But the response is also predicated on that culture. So the day after Casey shot King in May 1856, most of the original Vigilance Committee members um, reconvened their extra-legal association um, and designed to essentially take over this city's criminal justice system and purportedly restore integrity um, before the system itself could be repopulated and essentially restructured. Um, so the vigilantes understood the importance of shaping and controlling the public image in this society. Um, they were ostensibly only known by their assigned numbers and military-style ranks, but they made their faces familiar to the inhabitants of San Francisco, um, often through a series of visually documented public marches, martial displays of their power, uh, their appearances outside their headquarters at a large two-story brick building on Sacramento Street between Front and Davis. This is right in the heart of the financial district today. Um, and they also took portraits of themselves, which I discuss in detail in the book. Um, their committee certificate of uh, membership, which is on the book website, uh, indicated the prominent role that imagery played in honing the projected purpose of the paramilitary organization. It includes a number of allegorical female figures representing justice and moral power. It was executed by the celebrated gold rush artist Charles Knoll, 
who also drew the grizzly that now appears on the state flag. Um, in addition to some masculine Herculean figures bearing large clubs, several scenes of men drilling in uniform and digging with pickaxes before a fort. Um, and there were just 30 police officers in a city of over 56,000 at this point. So the legal authorities probably were overwhelmed, um, not only by rising crime, but by political corruption. Um, and the second vigilance committee uh, enjoyed a mammoth enrollment that totaled 6,000 men by the time it formally disbanded in August 1856. Um, so this was quite a movement. Um, and uh, one that, as I said, took advantage of mugshots, uh, photography. Um, they, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, although they lasted just three months, the second vigilance committee hanged four accused murderers, including Casey and Cora, they exiled 30 more suspects and produced or provided inspiration for a wealth of, of visual materials in the process. So the mugshots were supposed to ensure that those exiled men could never return. Um, and the papers reported on these men uh, as the notorieties um, and assured its readers that we will doubtless soon have lithographs or woodcuts of them all since papers could not yet print photographs. Um, and uh, so this is a very self-conscious culture in which um, the criminals themselves were fast learning the lasting significance of having their mugshot taken, conveying that knowledge um, through their own resistance to this process of documentation. So two of these men who were convicted by the Vigilance Committee, T.B. Cunningham and Alexander Purple, twisted and turned considerably, according to local papers. And it was only after several trials that uh, allegedly correct likenesses could be procured. The final matter or story I can tell here is uh, photographed corpse eyeballs, which is very distinctive. And from what I know, only happened in San Francisco, at least in this, it first happened in San Francisco. There are later reports of this happening um, towards the end of the 19th century and other places. But this is definitely the first instance of such an experiment on a human being that I've ever uncovered. Um, in early 1864, the city's papers start to run articles about a class of sensational theorists of the Parisian school who allegedly posited that a murderer could be positively identified and apprehended by means of photographic pictures of the image found impressed on the retina of the eye of the deceased, the victim. So in this conceptualization, the human eye operates just like a camera lens. It literally imprints the flow of images that stream through your daily existence and presumably retains the final picture that you see once life ceases. Um, and this theory had been circulating in the French press during the previous year, but those articles referred to a now lost English slaughterhouse experiment. And the New York Observer similarly reported on this discovery from the English papers in 1857. But again, this is really the first known attempt to apply the theory for human subjects, and it comes out of San Francisco. So it's a somewhat classic fantasy of justice served, the optimistic notion that the surveillance powers of human sight could be harnessed through visual technology to provide answers to all unsolved murders. Crime would no longer go unpunished if law enforcement could channel the irrefutable final testimony of the deceased, made possible through human ingenuity, that is, through photography. So on the night of February 25th, 1864, the San Francisco coroner, uh, reportedly, according to the papers, from motives of curiosity, determined to test the theory. So 
So he prepared one of the eyes of a murdered woman for photographing and created two pictures of 10 times life size, um, essentially, of, of her eyeballs to see whether they could capture the image of her murderer. Um, and San Franciscans were accustomed to utilizing photography as a means of uh, substituting individuals for endemic social problems or containing those complex ills within the criminal body, within these uh, ruminations about whether you could detect one's inherent criminality by looking at their mugshot. This is very much along the lines of the phrenology phenomenon that predated it by just a decade or two, um, and which was still going on in the 1850s in some circles. The notion that you could detect one's internal personality characteristics from feeling the bumps on their head. So the dramatic circumstances that surrounded this woman's demise only enhanced the suspense that San Franciscans associated with the possibility of the photographic test, as the papers call it, uh, working. They called it the photographic test or the retinographic test. The murdered woman was Mary Smith. She had been killed in her home on Stouts Alley, which is now Ross Alley in San Francisco's Chinatown. Um, one to two days prior to the coroner's experiment on her eyes. So a milkman discovered the 35-year-old on the kitchen floor in her nightdress. Her throat was cut almost from ear to ear, and a portion of her drawers or her nightcap was stuffed in her mouth to prevent her screams from being heard, and the floor was covered with blood. And this sensational crime was reported in the local press with front-page headlines that read, Another Mysterious and Horrible Murder, one of the same class uh, as that of Mary Johns and the Pike Street murder in this city and the Helen Jewett murder in New York. So the papers are not shy about invoking the popular topic of young female murderers, uh, murderers um, particularly among young prostitutes, or listing the string of well-known victims who had preceded Mary Smith and proved such good subject matter for selling copy. Um, some witness testimony suggested that Mary had been engaged in extramarital affairs or prostitution during her husband's stay in Virginia City. So at first, the local newspaper, the Alta California, reports that the results of the experiment on Smith's eyes were inconclusive. A confused and dim something appeared to have been impressed on the retina, which might or might not, if sufficiently magnified, turn out to be the thing the police were looking for. And so once again, the coroner prepares the eye for experiment. He takes greater care than before to have it in the proper shape, according to the papers, and confessed very little uh, faith in the theory at best, but he also acknowledged that if, as was probably the case, this murder was committed in the dark, the experiment would necessarily fail, even if the theory was uh, correct and the test as infall infallible as its originators claim. So everyone appeared to maintain the pretense of disbelief, but the article left room for the titillating prospect that this exotic French proposition might be right. And not to be outdone, the editor of the rival newspaper, the Daily Evening Bulletin, apparently it tried to attempt to scoop the Alta by dramatically declaring success in the next day's paper. They argued that um, either there was a remarkable coincidence or this test had produced a wonderful result because stamped upon the center of the retina, um, there is plainly to be seen the outline of a human figure so plainly as it wants to arrest the attention of the most unimaginative eye. The figure is that of a tall, dark man, the lower part of the face muffled in a heavy black mustache and beard, the left arm extended and the whole body thrown into the position of a man doing some violent deed. The face has enough of an outline to suggest the possibility of filling it up so as to recognize the man where he met in a crowded street. 
The busy hair surmounting a low forehead, heavy eyebrows arching over the cavernous depths where the eyes lie, the shadowy suggestions of the whole face, which cannot be described, but which impress the observer with a strange, weird horror. And the article concludes, a fool can deny everything. It is only a wise man who can seriously make up his mind to believe anything. So this reference to a tall, dark man may have been a dramatic flourish. It may also have served as a racial cue that played into recently published testimony at the coroner's inquest because Smith's neighbor uh, recounted that there were men in and out of her place, usually at all hours of the day or night, and that she had been in the habit of seeing a Spaniard um, uh, around outside her house for a week back, a tall, dark man with a mustache. So this report that declares the photographic test successful is then reprinted in the April issue of Scientific American and the May edition of Humphrey's Journal of Photography, both publications based in New York. Humphrey's reproduced the letter verbatim. The editors of the Scientific American called the claim a delusion concocted by an individual who seems to have had more fondness for sensation paragraphs than naked facts. And yet for all this derision, these skeptical editors appear to have allowed for some chance of partial truth because they wrote, he romances in such a style as to make us rather skeptical, whether his account be not wholly imagination, though he avers in his letter that he is not at all given to flights of fancy. So the New York press is wary of being duped, but it couldn't resist essentially reprinting this riveting tale for its own reading public. There's a follow-up story um, in the Alta California uh, published just a day after the initial article about this photographic test that clarifies that the retinographic experiment failed entirely as we anticipated that it would. But this conversation nonetheless continued, even back in San Francisco. Um, local magazines like the Pacific Monthly, um, which is a women's magazine, um, report that the retinal test is in no doubt the initiatory step to a series of experiments which may result in the discovery of many new interesting and important truths relating to the science of vision. Um, so this religious faith in the perfection of the divinely crafted human anatomy, combined with the 19th century zeal for scientific advancement as a means of progress, and led many Americans to eagerly anticipate such irrefutable proof of ultimate truths, um, of technological mastery and of God's design. How and why did celebrity performances, portraits, CDVs, and also black and yellow face minstrelsy all embody the idea of, of the gold rush metropolis? In your response, please provide examples of theaters and opera house venues and uh, spatial proximities to studios thereof. And if you can really briefly discuss Lola Montez, her disciples, and the allure of the spider dance. Okay. Uh, this is going, I'm going to try to keep this as brief as I possibly can. Um, so essentially you had an incredibly thriving, robust entertainment industry in the city. Um, one that intersects at various points with the hyper-competitive photographic industry. Many of the images in my, uh, final chapter in the book include, uh, firsthand evidence of this, where they will capture uh, the city's many large and opulent theaters um, right alongside uh, the photographic studios, uh, which are all concentrated in the central business district. Not all of them, but many of them are concentrated in the central business district of the city. Um, the theaters themselves are extremely large um, and can contain thousands and thousands of people. Um, 
And so they're real draws for a restless population that are starved for the latest in entertainments um, and uh, which are eager to really solidify their city's uh, position as uh, an epicenter of culture and not um, some sort of uh, backwater uh, pioneer, uh, you know, follower of the latest trends. Um, so popular large-scale painted panoramas are part of this phenomenon, and they're exhibited in these large theaters. Um, they're produced throughout the antebellum United States, um, but they have certain specific themes that are advertised in San Francisco. Um, they're essentially precursors of the motion picture. They sometimes incorporate background lighting, musical accompaniment, um, usually with an exceptionally large and moving canvas. So several of the city's first photographers, including the ever-enterprising Robert H. Vance, sought to capitalize on this demand by producing their own exhibitions of full-plate daguerreotypes that captured San Francisco and the California countryside. Um, and by September of 1849, New Yorkers could vicariously undergo the voyage around Cape Horn and digging in the gold fields. Bostonites visually relived John Fremont's Overland Trek. So San Francisco is essentially advertising itself or its photographers and artists are depicting it for the sake of curiosity of uh, audiences uh, back on the Eastern seaboard. Um, but of course, the Bay Area residents themselves are paying to watch displays of their own surroundings and archetypes because they were just as fascinated as the rest of the world with their own historical moment, their context, their public representation. So by mid-century, um, they're plunking down money for what's called the grand panoramic views of the cities and scenery of California and the grand moving panorama of California. Um, so Mark Twain remarked how theaters like the Metropolitan um, opened under the management um, of new lessees, um, a company who are nearly all stars um, or as nearly all stars as it was possible to make it. Um, these theaters were in frequent and intense uh, competition with one another. Um, one editor remarked in 1854 that a new phase was coming over theatricals in the state because nothing will do now but stars, and even they must be of the first magnitude. The Californians are as good judges of acting as can be found anywhere, and they care not a fig for the opinion of New York or London. When we pronounce a favorable verdict, we are able to back it up with a fortune and snap our fingers in the face of the world. So here you see this declaration. One might say that this is quite common among boosterist um, declarations of pride in one city. Um, but it's interesting that the editor noted their financial clout, um, that with all of this hard currency circulating around San Francisco, it really does become a juggernaut in uh, celebrity industry. And in that sense, it's economic as much as it is cultural um, because of this public fascination that is so often realized in actual dollars. Lola Montez is a classic example of this. So she is a very scandalous figure whose full background I probably don't have time to trace here, but who had essentially engaged in a, a series of tawdry love affairs in Europe um, and who essentially scandalized the East Coast with a number of provocative appearances, her infamous spider dance in which she was essentially um, inclined to search for this imaginary spider uh, uh, by lifting her skirts higher than it was deemed uh, reputable to do um, or acceptable. Um, for Eastern audiences. Uh, and she is really embraced in the West 
quite defiantly, I think, uh, and apart from this more buttoned up, prudish culture that is identified with the establishment of uh, the Eastern seaboard. Um, so this, again, predominantly male population of the early 1850s, San Francisco embraces her and all of her unapologetic sexuality with open arms and enriches her accordingly. She commands um, incredible proportions of the box office when she debuts um, and winds up remaining in California for a number of years um, in no small part because of this uh, local embrace and because um, she intrigues not merely the men, but there are uh, a few different pieces of evidence from female critics or uh, writers in the local press and from housewives like Mary Jane McGuire, whose uh, letters are famously cataloged in a republished collection, Apron Full of Gold, um, who talks about how curious she is to see Montez, who um, you know really wants to know what all the fuss is about, essentially. Um, so she's channeling this kind of curiosity in a unique climate that is perhaps uh, much more uh, permissible for these sorts of uh, acts that really ride this line between uh, what is and is not deemed acceptable for public entertainment. And then later incarnations like Ada Isaacs Mencken, who arrives in the 1860s, certainly build on uh, the work that Montez has done in, in carving out this special liminal space, particularly for female celebrities in San Francisco uh, entertainment culture. And so Mencken plays with gender uh, identity. She cross-dresses, she poses, dressed as a man and a gambler. Um, so transgressing on multiple levels in terms of what was deemed respectable behavior uh, for the 19th century middle class. Um, and again, reaps uh, financial whirlwind in San Francisco as a direct result of it. Um, so that's one, I think that's a small slice of uh, this larger world that you get from this last chapter of the book in terms of uh, the, the different modes uh, that these entertainment forms take. Um, and performers sometimes incorporated distinctive features of San Franciscan life into this entertainment culture. So blackface minstrelsy is, I think, easily the most uh, popular entertainment form uh, of the 19th century in the United States. But what they do in San Francisco um, is uh, sometimes combine blackface routines, which do exist in the city, with what were apparently yellowface depictions um, in 1854, there's a, a so-called China washerman uh, and then a so-called John Chinaman, which is supposed to be you know, sort of a, an all-encompassing stereotype of a Chinese man. Um, this was in the uh, 1860s and 70s. So there was a minstrel performer, Charlie Bacchus, who was billed as the great mimic, who performed both of those yellow face roles um, and may have introduced in the process the first American impression of a Chinese immigrant. So from the beginning, that impression is anchored to Chinese men's stereotyped role as launderers, performing a species of what was deemed a feminized uh, and unappealing uh, type of labor that few white men were willing to undertake if they had any alternative. Um, although this is also complicated, somewhat fraught in San Francisco, as blackface minstrelsy is clearly fraught on a number of levels, um, because white men themselves were forced to do their own laundry uh, in a number of circumstances in the gold fields. And that itself is an element of uh, life in gold rush era California that is satirized in some of the Western uh, letter sheets. 
So can you briefly address the significance and insignificance of motion pictures to San Francisco visual cultures of perception and consumption? And then, uh, you know, tell us maybe what's up for you next. Are you working on another project or what? Sure. Um, So San Francisco photographer Edward Moybridge, who originally hailed from England, but had been practicing uh, in the city on and off since uh, the early years of the gold rush. Um, or since the 1850s, at least, uh, he really innovates this uh, process of stop-action photography studies for uh, former California Governor Leland Stanford um, in Palo Alto uh, in the 1870s and 80s for Stanford's uh, horse ranch, documenting uh, animal and then human locomotion. And Thomas Edison then builds on that with the kinetoscope, which anticipated the birth of silent films. Um, and so the movies, you know, provide this vehicle for people of all kinds of backgrounds, but perhaps especially the working and middle classes um, to escape the drudgery of their jobs, however, temporarily um, to experience vicarious thrills and travels, to fantasize, to feel connected with the characters on the screen or the audiences around them. And I argue that it's perhaps fitting, if not providential, that Moybridge um, spent most of his career engaged in the photographic industry of San Francisco um, and its proffered visions of California as this spectacle and idol. Um, so uh, by 1890, the Gold Rush Metropolis was, um, as one scholar called it, the Pacific Coast jewel in the national touring crown for celebrities who dominated show business throughout the country, but most emphatically in this city of San Francisco. So at this point, um, it boasted more theater seats per capita than any other U.S. city, including New York, and um, had more than 5,000 drinking establishments, which was roughly one for every 60 residents. Um, for all the Victorian efforts at carving out a, a more respectable space for bourgeois leisure, um, reformers and Bacchanalians well understood that there were historic and enduring interconnections between entertainment and vice industries. And by the time motion pictures were introduced to the world, Western audiences were already thoroughly accustomed to their role as spectators in search of entertainment and vicarious fantasy of various kinds, whether that was lascivious or not. So the sense of connection that was derived from repeatedly looking at a celebrity's image, either, um, you know, in a carte de visite image, um, these sort of trading cards, people would populate photo albums with them, or on the stage or in the movie house. That paralleled the same acculturation that took place when the advent of photography enabled loved ones to exchange portraits over long distances, which San Francisco, of course, embodied. So moving images were a significant development, not because necessarily they introduced new viewing practices, but because they accentuated the verisimilitude of this pre-existing visual culture and because they celebrated speed and bodies in motion. So films really enhanced the elements of virtual movement in time that had popularized panoramas earlier in the 19th century. They made audiences feel as though they were experiencing the story firsthand, as if they were directly implicated in the performance. And they fostered an even further a connection between performer and viewer, an intimacy fueled by imagery, however artificial that may have been, and a sense of a shared spectatorial experience um, which was on an entirely new level. Um, 
And so as spectacles became more lifelike, audiences prized the physical person of the celebrity all the more, this relationship between one's image and the human referent behind it. So the industry achieved unprecedented profits as all the subsidiary businesses, such as the tabloids, fed an insatiable public desire for more images, more access, more information about their stars. And modern entertainment culture fostered this unending cycle of tantalizing images that stoked popular thirst for more images, all in search of what was an ultimately unattainable intimacy with the subjects of those images. And despite the advent of motion pictures, Americans significantly never abandoned the practice of posing for or exchanging or purchasing and displaying photographic portraits. So the handheld camera emerges in 1888. Uh, Dr. George Eastman develops this stripping film that supplies his device, the Kodak camera. Um, but this democratization of the photographer's livelihood, um, it expands the accessibility and affordability of the photographic medium. It integrates picture taking into just about any event in a person's life, from the noteworthy to the mundane. Um, but professional photographers endured and endure to this day. And I think that indicates the full range of formats, uses, and occasions for image production that American consumers have long cultivated. So for all of its distinctiveness in its particular, you know, originary moment, in its demographics, in this internationally famous event of the gold rush, I think that San Francisco is a really telling harbinger of things to come in a broader sense for urban America and the urban industrialized world. When we think about the omnipresence of visual spectacle, even in our own time, um, and the way in which that increasingly takes hold uh, alongside high capitalism, alongside the industrial revolution, alongside all the technologies that enable image multiplication, reproduction, uh, the halftone process uh, that my predecessor in this job, Neil Harris, famously wrote about, um, which takes hold in the 1880s and 90s and thereafter and enables um, images to be printed alongside text in newspapers and magazines. Um, so it, it really is, I think, a, a dynamic story that stays with us to this day. As to what's ahead for me, I'm um, in the process of uh, researching and writing a second book that is even wider in scope. It's called Picturing American History. And it's essentially 10 chapters that span the entire 19th century uh, in a, a national context, and in some respects, a, a transnational one um, that seeks to examine uh, the images that Americans prized um, in their own time uh, in the 19th century um, as the most popular or provocative uh, visualizations of the profound and sweeping changes taking hold in their midst. Everything from uh, visual depictions of slaves and slavery to uh, the nuclear family and the age of the Industrial Revolution to uh, Native American warfare. Um, to uh, urban vice um, and essentially tries to examine or re-examine these larger phenomena um, by paying careful attention to the ways that certain images channeled the zeitgeist, that, that people looked to certain visualizations of these larger phenomena and stories in their midst and prized certain visualizations above others as either what they found most compelling or the versions of the story that they would preserve uh, for posterity as their particular iteration or interpretation of history in the making. Well, 
we hope you remember the New Books Network for that next project. I certainly will. Thank you so much, Ryan. So this has been a production of the New Books Network's uh, History Channel. The book is Consuming Identities, Visual Culture in 19th Century San Francisco, out now by Oxford University Press. On behalf of the historian, uh, Professor Amy Lippert, and the New Books Network, this is Ryan Tripp. Please tune in next time.